Good morning and welcome to the latest Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And obviously, with the coming of the war between Hamas and Israel, uh, our schedule goes out the window and uh, our community has to be welcomed to my world. We'll get back to normal, to our new planned three-pronged uh, week where we spend a section on the culture. Our next group will look at Hemingway and why he matters. Uh, we will then, of course, have the usual Around the World in 20 Minutes broadcast, and we'll continue on with the book um, as, as we go along uh, and, and head into the more modern presidents from Franklin Roosevelt onward. What was I thinking about the book, which again comes out um, in early January, and I look forward to you all buying it and helping us defeat the mighty Amazon algorithm. I'll let you know when to write. Um, it's an exciting moment for us. <clears throat> but before we get there, um, obviously we're at a battle stations at the moment, and uh, this is part of the political risk world that you it, you do current events and try to give them context in your deeper analytical meeting. Um, this is when what we do really matters, uh, when we can take these deeper ideas that we develop and apply them to the world that we actually live in. And if you can do that ahead of time, um, then, you, then you have something for businesses around the world and, and for governments as well. And I think we've done that in the Middle East very well. Uh, I, I've been annoyed that a number of my competitors have pretended they were right about things that they weren't, but that's part of the game. You can all check out what everybody says on Google easily enough. But our view about the Middle East has been steadfast and I think it's been proven out by what has happened um, and uh, I want to go back and try to put that together, this broader analytical view we have uh, with what's going on now. And we'll keep at the Hamas crisis until it subsides into some sort of easily predictable pattern. And until then, it's battle stations for a while, and that's that's what we do. So that's fine, and I'll, I'll take you with us as we go through this. Um, today we're going to look at the fatal flaw of the Obama-Biden Mideast policy. And... I think it's become tragically clear where the Wilsonians went wrong in the Middle East. Uh, but again, I would say a few things. As often with the wrong-headed Wilsonians, unlike the neoconservatives, I don't think they do this out of some sort of bad feeling. I don't think they do this because they're traitors. I think they do this because analytically they don't understand how the world works. I don't question their heart. I question their head. And uh, I think that's a place to begin. I think they... And the Trump administration began at the same place. And so I'm going to tell you two strategic stories and see which one works the better. Uh, in many ways, the Biden administration is a third term uh, for Barack Obama. And more than the people, I mean the people around him. If you look at people like National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, uh, current U.S. Ambassador to NATO Julianne Smith, um, these, these are Tony Blinken, certainly our Secretary of State, these are people who worked under Obama and now under Biden. They're the same Wilsonian people. Uh, and they've obviously gone in again, slightly older, at a slightly higher position um, with the next administration. But it's important to see that, as Ronald Reagan said, people make policy. And this is really a third Obama term. And what they thought in the Middle East during the first two Obama terms is unsurprisingly what they think today in the Middle East. And, and that's an important point to begin with. This isn't new. This is, this is rather old. And what they think, and actually what the Trump administration thinks, uh, begins at the same point. So for all the toxic uh, political behavior 
between uh, the Republicans and the Democrats, they start at the same point. And I think the point is, is correct. And the point is, we've got to do less in the Middle East. Ultimately, our goal in the Middle East is to be an offshore balancer, is to be the great power that once there's a balance of power in the Middle East in some form of stability, that we, we intervene only if that balance of power seems to be endangered and heading toward instability, that we should be offshore balancers, that the Middle East has been the graveyard of presidencies, the graveyard of American strategic aims, that a region of only secondary importance to the United States overall, not nearly as important as the Indo-Pacific, for instance, has taken all of America's money, men, blood, treasure, time, and attention over the last two generations, and for almost no gain, for almost no strategic gain. And Obama, Trump, and Biden, I think those administrations would all agree that this is true, and they would be right. The question is then, if you start from that strategic idea, what do you do? We get to policy. They agree strategically that the Middle East uh, has been a quicksand for American foreign policy globally. We should ultimately be an offshore balancer and only intervene when the new <clears throat> balance of power is upset. And that until then, we should facilitate things in such a way that the U.S. does less in the Middle East and worries about more important regions like the Indo-Pacific. I think everybody pretty much agrees with that, be you Wilsonian, be you neoconservative even, and certainly if you're a realist like myself, that all three recent administrations, Obama, Trump, and Biden, agree with this. The problem is that then, from this point of agreement, that they devise radically different foreign policies and regional policies in the Middle East. And the first one, I mean, the Obama-Biden Mideast policy goes something like this, that you have to, to get to a new balance of power in the region where you do less and sit as an offshore balancer only intervening when a new balance of power is overthrown. You need to include all the great powers within the region, and that would be Egypt, that would be Israel, certainly Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and critically Iran, that you can't reach a regional balance of power without Iran being included within the regional balance of power. And so the goal of the Obama-Biden strategy is that we have to bring Iran in from the cold, that we have to make a deal with the Islamic Republic of Iran, and that this is critically premised on the, the utterly false notion that Iran is somehow not a revolutionary power, that Iran is just simply another nation state with grievances. It doesn't want to upend Middle Eastern order and society um, and dominate it. Instead, it wants to just be a part of it as a great power with its own interests. But that ultimately Iran is a status quo power, that they're moderates just around the corner. And that as a result, if we treat with Iran over its nuclear program, reach some sort of deal with Iran, some sort of accommodation with Iran, that then we can leave the United States because then Egypt, Turkey, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Iran, between them, can over time form an organic balance of power that once that's set in place, no one of these countries can dominate the whole of the region, that the United States can then sit, begin to do less and sit uh, at, like an eagle watching from a distance as some sort of offshore balancer swooping in only when it has to. And that that has very much been the story, the strategic story, and every strategy is basically a narrative. That's the narrative of the Obama-Biden people. 
The Trump narrative is very different. The Trump narrative is Iran is a revolutionary power, can't be dealt with, is determined to upend any sort of organic balance of power because ultimately as a revolutionary power, they don't accept limits. They want to dominate the whole of the region. And so you can't bring Iran in from the cold. That is suicidally a very bad idea that instead of trying to bring in a revolutionary power, which will you know, only sting you, the famous story, story of the, the Greek myth of the scorpion crossing the water in a variety of guises, and he asks for a ride across the water, and some sort of animal bears him across, and that the animal hesitates and says to the scorpion, well, I'm worried you might sting me. And the scorpion says, what, if I sting you, we'll both die. Why would I do that? And surely enough, halfway across the river, the scorpion stings the animal, let's say, It's some sort of water buffalo or hippo, and it stings the hippo, and the hippo says, but you sting me and we're both going to die. Why did you do that? And the scorpion responds sensibly enough, I am a scorpion, meaning the nature of what you are in foreign policy is vital. If you can see things as they are, as realists say, as Burke said, that the key to making the world better is to see it as it is warts and all. Scorpions are scorpions. Revolutionary powers are revolutionary powers. You can't moderate them, treat with them, make them nice, make them accommodating, make them into status quo powers magically by giving into them that what Trump and realists would say, that's appeasement. That actually encourages them to be more revolutionary because they think you're weak in dealing with them. And that that is part of what goes on, that a scorpion, I am a scorpion, is the problem here. So instead of bringing in Iran from the cold, the Trump realist position, which is my position, is you build up your allies. And Trump did this rather brilliantly, gets almost no credit for it, through the Abraham Accords. And the Abraham Accords um, are a building up of, of Arab states making common cause with recognizing Israel at long last, This was an idea that you sideline the Palestinian issue, that this doesn't become a break on all other forms of progress as three generations have gone by. As is famously said, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. They were handed by Clinton late in his term basically the keys to the kingdom. They'd have got 85% of what they wanted and a two-state solution, and Arafat, to the absolute disaster of his own people, said no that they're always saying no, that they have these millennial goals that will never be met from their position of comparative weakness. And rather than letting this stop every other form of progress, Trump simply went round it and said, we'll keep talking about it, but it's not going to stop the rest of the Arab world recognizing Israel because they have a common enemy in revolutionary Iran. So rather than say Iran is somehow magically not a revolutionary power, Trump accepts that it is, but that if we go beyond the settlement um, over Palestine, we get people recognizing Israel. And that's really the basis of the Abraham Accords intellectually. You get countries like Morocco, Sudan, Bahrain, UAE, and these Gulf states would never have done this without the Saudis allowing it as the dominant power on the Arabian Peninsula. And so the Saudis wink through Bahrain and UAE agreeing, along with Morocco and Sudan. Israel already has ties, diplomatic ties with Egypt and Jordan. And suddenly Israel isn't a pariah in the region, but you have all these states, the Gulf states officially, Saudi Arabia unofficially, and then countries as far afield, pro-American countries such as Morocco 
as far afield, agreeing to work together. So you build up your allies, you put them together, you knit them together diplomatically, and suddenly this group keeps an eye on revolutionary power, um, Iran. And that's the way to deal with it. And then the United States can do less. Then the United States can, with Iran back in a box, function as an offshore balancer. And that's the Trump narrative. So from this common position that we have to do less in this, in this area that's a quicksand of American presidencies that has sucked up all the energy, all the oxygen, a lot of tragically American blood and treasure for almost no gain, that we need to do less, but it's an important region, so we have to be involved, but as an offshore balancer. And then the argument between Obama, Biden, and Trump is how best to do this. And the key differentiating factor is Iran, 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 and whether it can be made a status quo or revolutionary power. Well, one thing about Wilsonians is they never let facts get in the way of their theories, that anybody seeing the elevation of President Raisi uh, to head the Islamic Republic should have known that any idea of moderates is out the window. This is a man who made his name, and his nickname is the Butcher of Tehran. He participated as a prosecutor in a number of show trials during the early days of the Iranian Revolution and was personally involved in convicting and the hanging of thousands of people. This guy is not a moderate even within the Islamic Republic, meaning he's way out there. And so the most conservative, hardline, ideological president ever to run Iran is now running the country. There's no sign of a moderate anywhere on the scene. And there's a lot of thought that Raisi's been put in this position to either become the next supreme leader after uh, Ayatollah Khamenei passes from the scene or to facilitate the transition to another hardline Ayatollah as the supreme leader. So there's absolutely no sign politically and this is where you have to follow the ball, the facts, what's actually happening. No sign that Iran is moderating its behavior for this nuclear deal that Obama put in place, which, by the way, never got rid of Iran's nuclear program. It only gave them vast economic inducements to put the program on hold with a bunch of sunset clauses, which would by now be running out. So if you're Iran, you just wait out these clauses, you get all the economic benefits, and then you go back to trying to produce a nuclear weapon, and literally by law, no one can stop you. So this was always, to me, terrible tactics. But worse, the strategy makes absolutely no sense because it's founded on the notion that Iran is somehow a status quo power. When all empirical evidence, certainly with the elevation of Risi to the presidency of Iran, proves that this is not the case that it's always in America we're searching for these moderates that we never find and like a good Beckett play we're waiting for Godot and he's just not there um, so what we've seen with the Hamas war is the fatal flaw over Iran at the heart of the Obama Biden Mideast policy um, and this is what's been happening and why the, we've really seen Hamas end this Wilsonian delusion about how the Middle East works um, it doesn't really matter. And I keep hearing this, did Iran, what did Iran know about Hamas and when did it know it? This is, this is for the newspapers. This is beside the point. This is, other than that, what did you think of the play, Mrs. Lincoln, which was a favorite expression of my family, uh, if, about people grasping the unessential. Mrs. Lincoln didn't care about the play. 
given that her husband had just been assassinated. And when people would get things wrong in our family to this day, we still say that. That's one of our sayings, an idiom that we use for missing the point. And it suits the moment that, you know, other than that, what did you think of the play, Mrs. Lincoln? When did Iran know about what's going on? Really does miss the point. There's there's contradictory evidence as to how involved Iran was in fueling Hamas's barbaric attack. The point is, and what we can all agree on, and what we can all then make analysis from, is that Iran is a grant organizer. You know, I understand this because I've had grant organizers in my life, and that doesn't mean they're involved in my day-to-day writing or day-to-day what I'm thinking or day-to-day what I'm doing. What they say is, you're, a, you're, you're one of the world's leading realist writers, and we'd like to work with you because we're realists. Can you give us a book, an article, brief us, do play a war game, do something with your firm, and can you do it by this certain amount of time? And uh, how you do it and where you do that and the specifics of how you do that we don't care. We know who you are. We know that we're on the same side. We think that our goals are in common and you can help us and we'll give you this amount of money to do it by this amount of time. That's how a grant works. And that's in essence what Iran is for Hamas and for Hezbollah. Now, even there, there are differences that, you know, the the Iranians are the dominant Shia power within Islam and, and Hamas or Sunni. So they don't even agree. If somehow they were to dominate the, re- the region, Hamas is a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, Sunnis and the Iranians would look upon them as heretics. And so they wouldn't necessarily agree if they were to dominate anyway. So they're farther afield, unlike Hezbollah in Lebanon, which are Shia. They're co-religionists with Iran. They're much closer ties culturally in terms of religion. Uh, specifically. They work much more hand-in-glove. Hamas is farther away generally and is more of a grantee rather than a best friend. And there's a huge difference there. So when people keep conflating them, be careful because that's just not the way it works in this very complicated region. And you have to know these things. Um, But whether Iran pulled the trigger and nodded in some sort of specter James Bond way and then set things in motion or not, Um, really is beside the point. I don't think it matters at all. The point is that Iran is the paymaster for these major terrorist groups in the region, Hezbollah and Hamas, and that they are the the grantor, that they give out grants. They're a grant organization that Hamas came to them and said, look, we want to stage some sort of incident and penetrate Israel and cause chaos in Israel while they're distracted with their own political divisions over Bibi Netanyahu's judicial reforms, it looks like it took several years to plan this operation and that this grant money was given out by Iran. No one's doubting that that Iran helped provide the grant money, that Iran helped provide some of the organization for this, that it behaved in a grant manner. How involved they were specifically to me is what do you think of the play, Mrs. Lincoln? It doesn't really matter. The point is that Iran at base is funding and organizing this attack. And of that, there's no doubt. How involved they were in the moment entirely misses this point. And what this proves in action, much as Raisi winning in politics proves it, in action, this proves that Iran remains a revolutionary power, determined to try to subvert directly through or indirectly through Hamas, Israel, and subvert a great state. And what's to upend the present Middle East order, where 
Egypt is broadly an American ally. Israel has a special relationship with the United States. Saudi Arabia, for all the twists and turns, still remains in terms of strategy, broadly an American ally. Turkey, for all the difficulties, is broadly an American ally. And so it's a region that is broadly pro-American in terms of the great powers. Iran wants to subvert that as the Hamas attack makes crystal clear. And if this is true, what it means is that the Obama-Biden Mideast policy, which is Wilsonian, that you can transcend the present and then transform um, Iran into a status quo power, has fatally um, failed. And this is the great tragedy. There's no doubt this is the case. And because of this, the only option, uh, unless you're going to get directly involved in the Middle East, which would be a catastrophe, given the United States is already over-involved in third-order priority Ukraine, and now Israel can take care of business on its own, the United States should be open to helping Israel in terms of wherewithal, if it, if and when it needs it. It certainly should help it with intelligence. It should help it with diplomacy. I applaud President Biden actually going out to the region and making a rather tough speech in favor of Israel this week. All that's to the good, but let's remember the point of agreement between Obama, Trump, and Biden, not to get embroiled in the quicksand here. The Israelis can take care of business. The United States should help them, but it should not become embroiled in yet another war when Israel will manage this very well on its own terms. Where we have to go back is to see the fatal flaw of Iran and see it as the revolutionary power it is. Then the Trump policy, the Abraham Accords, becomes the only way forward for the United States to both maintain a presence in the region, for there to be a pro-American slant to the region, but for organically us to support pro-American allies in the region as we do less and less there and more and more in the vital Indo-Pacific. So that's where we've been, where we are, and hopefully a little hint of where we're going. Hope you enjoy that. Very fun to do this as always. Please do Stay in great touch. We're following, as you can guess, this happening minute by minute, and we will give you updates as they come. But I want to give you this broad background so that you can look at what happens, these random data points in this larger analytical kind of way of thinking. And if you can do that, then you can do political risk and see what's coming, and you have the keys to the kingdom. And a bit like Indiana Jones finding some ancient runes that explain everything, realism, as ever, explains everything. Take care and on to the next.